0: Good morning. How are you? I am not doing great. (laughs) It was homecoming yesterday and life was so much easier when Madeline was five and she thought she was going to marry me instead of going to homecoming with a date. So if any of you parents can commiserate, oh, my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to get through these years um, Maddie is a huge Les Miserables fan, and so this boy at her school, uh, talk about pressure. It, it, there's so much pressure, uh, on these little proposals for homecoming and prom, but this boy had a friend of his, uh, create a poster, and this beautiful artist did a rendering of Cosette from the, the poster of Les Mis. We've all seen Les Mis. Um, we, we, we love Les Mis in our family. In fact, Maddie's gonna see Les Mis in San Diego with my mom, uh, in a few months, but he wrote, uh, drew this beautiful picture of Cosette. And then the, the caption said, Maddie, I would be less miserable if you would go to homecoming with me. And and so how do you say no to that? She she melted and Jessica and Amber melted and I don't like him. And... <laughs> but, but was it fun? I've not seen her since since she got ready yesterday. So I guess I'll hear about that later. But so, well, let's 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 stick together. OK, why don't you grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. Uh, did any of you grow up in church? Anybody here grow up in church from the time that you were a little kid? Okay. And if you grew up in church from the time you were a little child, did you in Sunday school ever do sword drills? Anybody here ever do a sword drill? A sword drill was kind of a fun little Bible familiarity game where the students would, would be Asked to take their Bible and hold it up in kind of a neutral position if if you're new to church or you didn't go to Sunday school I'll tell you what a sword drill is they would hold their Bible up like this and then the teacher would throw out a reference like Luke nineteen one, and and the students either had to be sitting down or they would take a knee and then they would scramble to see who could find it. And the first kid that could find it would jump up and start reading the verse, and then they would get a point for their team. And I tell you what, we took the sword drills so seriously. It was like it was like a Wild West duel. And I felt like I was Clint Eastwood. I I, I would get my I would get my Bible all set and I'd kind of stare down my my classmates and you know squint a little bit and take one last puff on the cigar <laughs> and then and then I would crush them finding verses like Luke 19, one, where it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. This is such a casual opening verse. Jesus just entered the city and he was just passing through and It's so casual and and nonchalant until we remember that the Bible teaches us that Jesus was God. Jesus was the fullness of deity in human form. And so as this chapter begins, God is passing through the city. And I just wonder how many times in our lives has God passed by and maybe we didn't even notice it. I do not want to miss any moments in my life. I don't want to have deity move past me and then be unaware of it. You know, over in the Old Testament, in Genesis 28, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, runs away from home and while he's running away from home, he gets fatigued, he falls asleep and he has a dream and in this dream, a gigantic ladder gets set up that stretches from earth all the way to heaven and these angels are ascending and descending on this ladder and then God himself stands at the top of the ladder and and he speaks to Jacob and Jacob wakes up and he said, oh, my God, the Lord was in this place and I didn't even realize it. And I so want us to be a church that's that's attuned to what God is doing. I don't ever want to to wake up and rub my eyes and realize oh, the, the deity passed by and, and we missed out. In Luke 19, one Jesus entered Jericho. And was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And incidentally, the name Zacchaeus means pure. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will repay them four times the amount. Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So we're in our third week today of a little short series that we're doing here at Grace called reversing Four tragic isms. There are some, some deadly isms in our world today that's hurting us. That they're, they're hurting our society. They're hurting our nation. They're the isms of racism, ageism, classism, and sexism. And we wanted to take this month to talk about what our part might be in pushing back against some of those isms because we don't want to be a church that sits back on the sidelines of our generation and just pleads our innocence. Well, well, we're not racist. Well, we're not sexist here. We want to do far more than plead innocence. We want to be in the fight. And we want to be mixing things up. And we want to be pushing back against some of these things in our world today because we want to be a part of the cure. So I kicked this off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, by talking about uh, racism. Last Sunday, Isaiah talked to us about ageism. Next Sunday, I'm going to be talking to us about uh, sexism. So next Sunday, we'll be looking at what the New Testament says about God's view and perspective and the role and the place of women, both in society and in the church. But w- whether we're talking about racism or ageism or sexism, all of these isms have the same underlying problem that fuels them. They're all fueled by prejudice. They're all fueled by negative judgments that we make against a person based on a certain aspects of their life. So if I am racist, I will judge a person based on their ethnicity or based on a stereotype stereotype that gets attached to that ethnicity. If I'm ageist, I will Judge a person based on their age. Old people are all like this. Or young people these days. They're all like that. And prejudice is based on either feelings of superiority. "I I feel like I'm better than you. Or they're based on feelings of inferiority. I'm afraid of you. Or I feel insecure around you. But regardless of the starting point. Whether it's superiority or inferiority. The prejudice creates an unfair labeling of people. So a woman certainly can't be as good of a leader as a man. Not because of an honest assessment of her leadership skill set or her abilities, but simply because she's female and all old people are grouchy and they become irrelevant after a certain point. Or all young people are too self-absorbed and too immature to be given a seat at the table. They, they, they don't have a voice. They don't have something to contribute. Um, all Asians or all black people or all white people are like this. Now, are some Asians and are some black people and are some white people like that? Yes. Are some old people cranky? Do some old people let themselves become irrelevant as they age? Yes, you do. I'm just kidding. Do, do 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 some young people need to grow up a little bit and think beyond themselves before they can be trusted or empowered? Yes, of course. Um, are some women worse leaders than men? Yes. But it's because of a side-by-side comparison, not because of sweeping racist or ageist or sexist or classist prejudices. Classism, and that's where we're going to go today. Classism is prejudice. Again, arising out of either superiority or inferiority. Classism is a prejudice toward people of different um, social classes. Do you ever feel intimidated when you get around really rich people? Do you ever get around rich people and you just kind of feel like the clampets? from the Beverly Hillbillies. (laughs) It's it's an ageist joke for you, old people. But um, actually, I guess that's kind of a classist joke too, isn't it? But but do do you ever feel a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit awkward or a little bit just insecure around people that you perceive as being more successful or more accomplished than you? Or conversely, do you ever get into a setting? I don't know. Maybe maybe when you have to go to the DMV. I I don't know. a, a, A setting where there might be people who who are on a lower social class um, status than you? And do you ever feel a little bit smug? Do you ever feel a little bit superior around people? Have you ever heard or said things like white trash, trailer park, that's so ghetto, redneck? Rich snobs. See, we know what racist slurs are. These things are classist slurs. And and can we just be really honest? Sometimes we have those feelings. Sometimes I feel intimidated around rich people. And sometimes I feel superior to people who are poorer than me. Maybe that's a middle class thing. Or maybe it's a human thing. Maybe millionaires feel intimidated by billionaires. Maybe poor people who have a little shabby house feel superior to poor people who have no house. Uh, my brother is a celebrity. He's a singer, actor, and he's told me stories of some of these big celebrity parties that he hangs out in. And he said that, um, not all the time, but most often at these big celebrity parties in Hollywood, he said the social pecking order in the air is almost tangible. Not with every actor. Some actors, of course, are very chill. They're very down to earth. But he said, generally speaking, when you interact with somebody, they they interact with you while constantly looking over their shoulder. Who else has just come into the room? Has somebody more beautiful or more talented or more successful just walked into the room? Everybody needs to know where do I fit in that social order? Classism seems to be growing In America today, if you all remember, which I'm sure you can't forget, it was a huge talking point during the presidential election that we just had. Everybody was talking about uh, this gap between the super rich and the poor. Bernie Sanders made some very compelling points about this increasing gap and and the problem in our country with the one to three percent of our people who control the vast majority of the wealth. He made some very compelling points. It got a little frustrating for me, though, to hear him constantly railing on the one to the two percent when he was in the one to two percent. It got a little hard for me when Hillary Clinton kept passionately fighting for the little guy when she's a multi multimillionaire. She makes more money delivering one speech than most of us make in two years of work. And then with Donald Trump, I don't think we still don't know it was on his tax returns, do we? <laughs> It's a little bit challenging to hear a billionaire talking about the plight of the working guy or the working girl. But you know what? Even if the messengers were frustrating, the message was still very clear. Uh, There is a great disparity. There's a great gap in our country um, that needs to be considered and it needs to be addressed. Capitalism and free enterprise is a better economic system than other systems like communism. People need to be empowered to chase their dreams and maximize their potential. And it's good for our country when somebody can use their talents and start a company and employ uh, many, many people. But there are also systems and there are also structures embedded inside a capitalistic society that keeps certain people trapped in certain levels of of, uh, uh, prosperity or the lack of prosperity. Um, we we all have the same Declaration of Independence. We've all been endowed with rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But not everyone has the same means of pursuing those rights. The other day, I was getting all uptight with myself. I had been eating terribly, and I was thinking to myself, "Man, I got to get back on it. Got to start drinking more water, and I need to be done with all this junk food. And I need to get back to the lean proteins and the the fresh vegetables." And then I thought to myself. I have the option of buying lean proteins. I have the option of doing a 30-day plan to get back on track. I don't have to feed my family on bulk junk food. I don't have to feed my family on mac and cheese that you can buy in bulk and things like that. There's, there are systems in place today. Now, that sounds like a treat to some of you. I know that, but um, mac and cheese sounds kind of good. But, um, but there are systems in, in place in our country that... That, that, that need to be addressed. And listen, a sermon at Grace Church from a pastor. I'm not a politician. I'm not an economic strategist. A sermon is not going to fix classism in America. But it might fix classism to a degree in here, in our heart. And it might affect the way we approach ministry. And it might affect the way we view people. And if that happens, then that might indeed have an effect that eventually Uh, changes the world. When Jesus was passing through Jericho and when he stopped beneath that sycamore fig tree and looked up at Zacchaeus, he was confronting classism. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Uh, Don't you hate being overcharged for things? Or do you hate being charged for things that used to be free? Does that really bother you when, you know, this has always been free and now you're going to squeeze me for this? We were in a hotel recently and I've always known that, you know, the contents of the minibar are stinking expensive. And I, and I know that, but this is the first time I've ever seen a minibar with a bank of sensors on the inside of it. Have you guys seen those before? Where if you simply lift the item out of the minibar, it automatically charges your credit card. So you can't even just, oh, do I want that? Do I not? Is this worth $15? No, thank you. You pick it up and you're charged on the dresser. You know how there used to be complimentary coffee? We were in this hotel and I picked up the coffee. I saw that it had a $5 price tag on it. It was a stale K cup of coffee and it charged my credit card $5. It's so frustrating to be overcharged for things. I mean, do you ever feel like you're just being squeezed dry financially? Well, in this story, Zacchaeus was the human embodiment of that kind of squeezing. He was a chief tax collector. Now, we don't really have in America, we don't have a job that's synonymous with this tax collector position. This was not the same thing as being an IRS agent. This wasn't a guy who went to Jewish people and made sure that they were paying their taxes to Israel. This was a guy who worked for the Roman Empire, who was oppressing the nation of Israel. This would be like if Germany had won World War II. And so now we Americans not only have to pay taxes to America, but we also have to pay taxes to Germany. When we moved away from Washington State to go to Colorado, April 15th was a culture shock for us because there's no income tax in Washington State. So we filed our federal tax returns. And they are like, wait a minute, what's this state tax return like we have here in California? If you lived in New York City, You would pay federal taxes, state taxes and city taxes. Well, these people in this time were paying taxes to Israel and then they were paying taxes to their oppressor, Rome. And the tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for Rome. And everybody knew that the way a Jewish tax collector made their money was through extortion. It was through squeezing However much I can mark up what you owe, I get to pocket the difference. So you owe Rome four. Well, I'm going to squeeze you for five. And if I can get five out of you, I get to keep one. And Zacchaeus was really good at this because it says he was a chief tax collector. And it says he was rich. So this man had become wealthy by making a fortune on the backs of his oppressed countrymen. Would you have liked that guy? Would he have been your favorite person? You notice every time in the New Testament, when a tax collector pops up, everybody says sinner. Nobody liked the tax collectors. Jesus' disciples didn't like this tax collector. Jesus had lots of followers. And there came a point in his ministry. It was actually about a year into his ministry when he looked at all of these people who were following him and he decided to choose 12 to become his closest disciples, his padawan learners did you did you see the star wars trailer oh my gosh it looks so good isaiah turned me on to it we're going to cancel church when star wars comes out in in december but 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 he chose 12 to be his padawans to be his disciples and uh, matthew mark and luke give us lists of the names of these disciples the last two names on the list were simon the zealot and judas iscariot Now, we know a little bit about Judas. We know that he was the one who betrayed Jesus. He took 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus over to the Jewish religious leaders who turned him over to Rome, who executed him. But it's fascinating to learn about Judas that a lot of scholars think that he was a member of the political party called the Zealots. The Zealots were a Jewish political party that hated Rome. Their sworn purpose was to overthrow Rome. They even routinely engaged in political assassinations of Roman officials. They would use a knife called the sicari. It was a short, curved dagger. And it was perfect for slashing somebody's throat in a crowd. And they engaged in these um, attacks. They literally became known as the sicari or the dagger men. Well, scholars believe that Iscariot, was not Judas's last name. He wasn't Mr. Iscariot. Iscariot comes from the word Sicari, is, uh, sicarius. It's. It, it was probably a nickname like Mac the Knife or Jack the Ripper. This was Judas the Sicari. He was quite possibly a hitman for the political zealots. And there was another disciple who also had a nickname. His name was Simon, and they called him Simon. The zealot. So at least two of Jesus' 12 disciples were members of this aggressive, even violent political party, and they would have hated Zacchaeus. In fact, in verse 9 that we read, you could see that Jesus, when he's all excited about what's happening with Zacchaeus, he's talking to Zacchaeus, but then he has to immediately turn and defend what's happening to the other people. In verse nine, Jesus says, says to him, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. But then he turns and he says, because, guys, this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Now, if he had been saying all of that simply to Zacchaeus, he would have said salvation has come to this house because you, too, are a son of Abraham, Zacchaeus. But what he did was he said, salvation has come to this house. And then everybody's bristling back here. And everybody's getting uptight. So he has to turn and say, hold on a second, guys. This man, too, is the son of Abraham. I know you'd like to slash his throat if you could. But I see him as a pure, washed, rescued son of Abraham, just like you guys are. You know, there are a lot of sermons that people can pull out of the Zacchaeus story." People preach sermons about Zacchaeus's desperation. I mean, climbed a tree. He was a rich guy, so I don't know if he was dressed in fancy clothes or not, but you kind of picture somebody dressed in expensive clothing, climbing a tree and hanging from the branches just to get a peek. Are we that desperate to see Jesus? Sometimes people preach about Jesus' excitement. I mean, it sounds like Jesus couldn't wait to get to Zacchaeus' home. Are we excited? To be with people who need an encounter with Jesus Christ. There's lots of sermons in here, but here's what I want to point out today. It's very simple. In this story, Jesus shows us the cure for classism. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I would give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay them back four times the amount. Why did he say four times? Four times was what Moses law required a thief to pay back for um, retribution. If a thief extorted you or stole from you, they were required by the law to pay back four times. So what Zacchaeus was saying is, Jesus, I'm converting. I'm going to bring my life into conformity with the word of God. And then look at how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him today, salvation. Has come to this house. The cure for classism. Is not legislation. The cure for classism. In our country. Is not sensitivity training. The cure for classism. In America. Is not merciful initiatives. To try and serve the poor. The cure for classism. Is salvation. Salvation came to Zacchaeus's home. And when it did, it changed him. And suddenly, classism is being addressed. 50% of what I have is now going to be funneled toward the poor. Anybody who's ever been oppressed is now going to be restored. See, all of these isms are heart issues. You can't cure racism with diversity training. Michael Scott tried that in the office and it didn't work. <laughs> you can't. Cure sexism through affirmative action. Affirmative action can ensure that a few more women get hired, but that doesn't cure a heart. You you can't you can't do a program for for the poor and expect that to change a heart. Salvation is the cure to the isms in our world. In fact, over in in First Samuel 10, when Samuel, the prophet, is addressing the newly elected King Saul or appointed King Saul, he explains to him. What is going to happen to him when God's salvation and power comes into his life? It says in 1 Samuel 10, 6, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Over in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. Legislation doesn't change a person. Salvation does. Encountering the life of God does. Getting overwhelmed by and filled up with the Spirit of God does. So the first step to reversing any of the isms in our world is salvation. It's a renouncing of our sins. It's a receiving of God's forgiveness. It's an embracing of the new life that God makes available through Jesus Christ by the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit. And here's the thing about salvation. It's more than a prayer. It's more than a mental, I believe in Jesus. Salvation is an actual stepping into a whole new realm of living and a whole new identity. It's not just more of the same, but now you're cleaned up and you're better. It is a whole new world. It's a whole new way of living. And then please hear this. This is the message. Jesus always expects the church to go first. One of the biggest problems in the church today is that we often don't live the things that we talk about. How is the church going to be a prophetic voice bringing moral clarity to the world on subjects of racism and sexism and classism if we're racist? If we're not esteeming the elderly? If we're not raising up the younger generations, if we don't have a heart for the poor. When Jesus, the carpenter, remember, he was a carpenter in his social class. When Jesus, the carpenter, reached out to Zacchaeus, the rich man, chief tax collector, he was throwing a straight right hand into the mouth of classism. But before he did that, Jesus made his disciples work this stuff out amongst themselves. See, Before Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus, remember your Bible stories here with me. Before he reached out to Zacchaeus, Jesus added a man to his team named Matthew. Now, Matthew was a later addition to the disciples. In Matthew chapter eight, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you guys to get in a boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee. And we've got some adventures we're going to engage in on the other side. They do that. God does some amazing things. Well, then in Matthew chapter 9, so a little bit later, it says this in Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? And then here it is. And sinners on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And you guys go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't care about all the religious stuff you're doing in the temple. I want your heart. I want you to love mercy. I want some action out of you, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call Sinners before Simon, the zealot and Judas, the dagger ever had to reach out to Zacchaeus. They had to learn to love Matthew, who was on their own team. They had to work it out amongst themselves. It's almost like Jesus was saying, hey, guys, I want you to figure this out. We're going to learn to love each other here, and then we're going to try and export it to the world. Probably the best thing Jesus ever did for Judas and Simon was to add Matthew to the team. And it's almost like Jesus was saying, guys, I am going to build a church and it's going to be made up of tax collectors and political zealots. And it's going to have conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats in it. And it's going to have egalitarians and complementarians and Calvinists and Arminian people. And we're just going to love each other so much despite our differences that the world stands up and takes notice. (laughs) I want to be a part of that church. You know, it seems like Jesus was excited to meet Zacchaeus. It's almost like he couldn't wait to reach out to a rich person. You know, Jesus is waiting to reach rich people. And he's also waiting to reach poor people. And I think he's waiting for some people to stand in the gap with him. One more thing this morning. Do you know who else was in Jericho on that day when Jesus passed through? A fellow named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a beggar and and he was the opposite end of the social class spectrum from Zacchaeus. If you're in Matthew 19, just back up a couple of verses or excuse me, Luke 19, back up to Luke 18, verse 35. In Luke 18, 35, it says, as Jesus approached Jericho, remember our text today began with Jesus passing through Jericho and entering the city. So as Jesus comes up. Upon the city gates, which he's about to go through and pass through, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and he ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, do you you not just love Jesus? Oh, my gosh. When the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And so Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So on the exact same walk. Jesus heals a beggar and he restores a rich man. And while both of those are happening, the future leaders of the church, Andrew, Peter, James, John, Thaddeus, Jude, Simon, Judas, they're watching this and they're watching the mission of Jesus. Jesus mission doesn't just tack on a little bit of helping hands, caring hearts. So we feel good that we're doing something for the poor. Jesus ministry doesn't just reach out once in a while and we'll do we'll do a few things because it's kind no it was central to the ministry a compassion for the poor and a commitment to reach the world was central to jesus ministry see there's a lot that a church like grace can't do in reversing these isms i mean come on we're we're, we're a couple hundred people here this morning we we can't get everyone off the streets We can't convince every rich person that they have a need for God, but we can practice compassion. We can uh, reach out to the rich people in our spheres. There's a lot of rich people today who know they have an internal need. They know that that reaching the summit hasn't satisfied them the way they thought that it would. You know, the longer I experience salvation, the longer the salvation of God works in me, the more um, the more I care about the poor, I don't care about the poor more than other people care about the poor. I'm just saying compared to myself, there are some people who don't even know Jesus that probably care about the poor more than I do. Some people are just more caring. But 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 since salvation has worked in me, I care about the poor more than I used to care. I care about the oppressed more than I used to care. If salvation is at work in you, you will increasingly care. If it's been a long time since there was an increase in your care, salvation isn't at work in you. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's not going to take care of you eternally. What it means is salvation. The life of God is not presently at work in you. God cares about the poor and he cares about the poor behind gated communities, too. So here's what I would like to do. Um, I want to make a big ask this morning. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and we're going to they're going to do another song. And we're going to have kind of a, an old school altar call time, except I'll let you stay in your chair. You can use your chair today as your altar moment. Jessica and I grew up in churches where sermons would happen and then there was a response and people expected God to touch them in that moment. They didn't just have a sermon, go in there thinking, and that's pretty good. And I'll go think about it and I'll go work on it. No, it was in this moment. God, I'm opening my heart to you in this moment. I want you to change me. Here's my, my big ask today. Would you be willing to consider your life and reorder it so that generosity and compassion and outreach is central? Sometimes we set the bar so low in church. We're just desperate for people. Would you just give a little bit to the church? You just, if you can get somebody to pay their tithe, that's amazing. Somebody who pays a tithe to the church and then they give a little bit to other organizations, that's huge today. No, would you be willing to reorder your life so that you can be more generous? And I'm not talking about being more generous to Grace Church, but to be more generous to be used by God to be an answer to some of these things. In fact, we have resources that can help you. If you've never done Financial Peace University, that's a tool that we have that can help a person learn how to get out of debt, how to get positioned differently so that they have something more to give. This whole crazy jacked up world that we're in where we're maxed out and we're leveraged and yet we still want more. That is totally contrary to the kingdom of God. That, that's just that's just the American dream a little bit Christianized. Yes, God wants to bless you, but he blesses so that we can be blessings. He doesn't bless us so that we max out and then want more. So I want to ask us to search our hearts today. And and maybe maybe there's some radical steps God's going to ask you to do. It doesn't mean Zacchaeus became poor. It just means he was no longer obsessed with hoarding. He was a very rich man. He probably gave away half and still had a lot. And that's okay. But he became generous. He became a conduit. He became a um, part of the cure for classism.